And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. I'm with Vivian Probst, author of the new book, I Was a Yo-Yo Wife, Until I Learned This. Vivian, how did you come to the conclusion, though, that you needed to stay gone from the first marriage? Stay gone from the first marriage? Because uh, that marriage was grounded in a uh, religious um, requirement that I could no longer fulfill. And so that uh, was the cause of the end of my first marriage. What was interesting is all of the other relationship stuff that had been going on in my first marriage started to show up in my second marriage. And that's when I had to start looking at, well, maybe it wasn't just him. Maybe it was. Uh, maybe I was playing a part in this, and that's when I, 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 I got, what, what's the word? It's like it hit me, oh, maybe I can resolve what's going on because I truly loved my second husband. There was nothing, uh, there was no religious uh, issue between us, uh, and, and yet I still saw problems. So that's when I got what I call this. Okay. Are you simply telling us, though, you came to the conclusion it wasn't him, it was you? Or is there more oh, to yeah. it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I gave up all blame, but it wasn't, it wasn't me either. It was that uh, when issues show up in a relationship, they're really showing you something that's old, perhaps an old wound or childhood situation, if we don't resolve that stuff, it hangs around and it gets worse. And so I realized that when there were, uh, there was friction between us, that wasn't about him or me. It was about something old that needed to be resolved, which can be resolved easily when you stop blaming each other for your stuff. It was so awesome. That's why I wrote the book. How did the lightning bolt happen, though, to help you figure it out? Oh, yeah. Well, I was leaving, and this time I was leaving my second husband for the last time. And all of a sudden, it hit me that my husband was actually giving me a gift. He was showing me, oh, this is so good, Peter. He was showing me how I treat myself. He was a mirror. And that intolerable attitude I felt from him, uh, it's, um, it's really clearly spelled on the book. That was old stuff. That was how I treated myself every day. And the only way I could see it anymore was if another person showed it to me. So that in that minute, I have to tell you, my relationship with my husband completely changed because I got, it wasn't about him. It wasn't about me. It was about old stuff that I was hanging on to. And when I started to treat myself with a little human dignity, which isn't easy for some people, you know, um, my whole marriage changed just like that, just like that. You came Isn't to that the, weird? No, not weird. It's, it's exciting that you were able to come to the conclusion that I deserve and what to fill in the blank. Yeah. 
Well, that's what I, that's what it was. When I got it, my husband got it because, you know, um, I think there's this lovely expression as it takes two to tango, right? Right. But what I got was it only takes one to save a marriage because once you get, uh, that there's something old that just needs to be resolved and you're both playing this drama out in life because, because you're reenacting old, old stuff. And when one of you gets that, that's all it takes. And, that, and you're right, that's all it took for me. I'm going to treat myself with dignity and respect. I'm not going to blame my husband. I'm not going to blame myself. I'm just going to be a little nicer to my own self, and voila, peace on earth. (laughs) Well, it's been said that we often repeat our parents' marriage. Yeah, well, that, and then I had the overlay of a very, very strict and sort of punishing religious constraint. And so, yeah, so when you don't believe that you're worthy of of respect or, or love or you don't, you know, you you just you're not good to yourself. Well, the world outside gets that, and they treat you the same way. And then you look at them and you go, "Well, why are you treating me like that?" <laughs> and it's like, "Oh, that's because I'm doing that to myself." It's so it's like it's like um, it's magic. It's like magic. Did you? Requ- I love it. Did you require a therapist to do this, or did it all come? Out of your it own was, efforts. Yeah, it, it was so instantaneous for me. But I we had been through therapy because we really wanted the marriage to work. But I was still so stuck. We both were in our old patterns. It wasn't until I started studying quantum physics and I dropped into this sense of, you know, uh, quantum physics teaches that I know it's so early in the morning we're talking about quantum science that's ridiculous but but when I realized that the external world is just really showing you your inner world and your inner world is the most important world uh, that's when this thing just dropped instead of leaving my husband I turned everything around and I practiced this for eight years Peter to make sure it worked and then I wrote my book. And if there's one first step a woman should take, what should that step oh, be? Oh, such a good question. She needs to learn what her preferences are. She needs to start focusing. In my book, I talk about meology, which is the study of me. She needs to get acquainted with herself, and she must become absolutely devoted to herself. I call it a door. There is a door into her world, and that is to adore herself. And as she does that, well, then she adores what uh, she creates. What she adores in her external world. And I, uh, my husband and I, have now been extraordinarily happily married um, for nine additional years. So we got thirty-one years in, and. Uh, and it's so important that someone take the initiative, and I did. I started practicing and loving myself and stating my preferences and uh, 
following my interests, not sacrificing myself for everyone else, which just makes you more bitter, you know. Absolutely. Do you think, though, maybe we need a book? I was a yo-yo husband until I learned this. Well, if uh, my husband wrote the foreword of this book, um, and he, I don't know that he still understands it, but but it works. And so, who's going to argue, right? Right. Uh, there could be a book. I was a yo-yo husband because, uh, you know, here's the thing, Peter: that more second marriages fail than first marriages. And more third marriages fail than second marriages. And so it's like, well, what are we doing wrong? So, yes, a man can get this, a woman can get it. Whatever it is, I start taking care of me. And everything else quiets down. And the love that we originally thought we had for each other uh, is there. It's uh, Yeah, so I think absolutely. I don't think my husband's going to write it, though. <laughs> well, maybe you can write one for men, or do you think that women don't understand? Oh, I think we do when we get to the point. You see, and, and what you said in the beginning is so important because um, you can vacillate and think things, but when it gets really desperate and then you think we need therapy, and, and therapy is good, but the whole point is to get to the cause, and when you realize that the cause isn't, either of you so you can stop blaming you know that so yeah sure let's do a i was a yo-yo husband and i'd like to say thank I, you. I mean, Go ahead. i'd like to say thank you to vivian probst her new book i was a yo-yo wife until i learned this maybe it's something we need to all think about thank you vivian probst thank you peter my pleasure and you're listening bye -bye. To, bye and you're listening to wip sunday here on 94WIPL Sports Radio, my name's Peter Solomon. We'll be back after these messages. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon, and we're into the home stretch with author Christine Hyung Oakley. She's 33. It's New Year's Eve 2006, and she has a stroke. Her new book, Tell Me Everything You Don't Remember, The Stroke That Changed My Life. Good morning, Christine Hyung Oakley. Hi, good morning, Peter. Welcome. All right, tell me about the Christine before the stroke. Well, the Christine before the stroke was leading a very good life. Um, there was nothing wrong with her life. I, I, I characterize myself as any one of Parker Posey's characters, you know, the kind of person that makes coffee nervous. And, um, you know, I was just, I had a career in HR and, you know, was married to the love of my life and, um, you know, had a very normal life. And then came New Year's Eve 2006. What happened? I woke up with a headache that morning and, you know, I thought I had a migraine. I, I used to get those quite often. And so we went to the store and uh, we needed to run some errands. And it was during the course of going to the store that I began to think something was a little wrong and or I thought, well, this is the weirdest migraine in the world. I couldn't figure out what these things on the horizon were called and I forgot the name of the thing on the ground that was white and cold and, you know, those are mountains and snow and I couldn't figure out what I was wearing. It just They just all became sensations and shapes and sounds 
And it wasn't until we got to the store about 10, 15 minutes later that I realized I got out of the car and then everything shifted 90 degrees. So everything was sideways and then doubled. I saw, you know, all the snowblowers were doubled, the trees were doubled. And then I knew, you know, and even my husband at the time, Adam, knew that something was wrong and then we went home and I took a nap, which is the worst thing you could do during a stroke. But who has a stroke at 33, right? Right. So, and then I woke up and I lost all my words and lost my memory. Was there a history of strokes in your family? You know, at the time, no. My my family is, was healthy and nobody died of a stroke. It turns out, though, that my dad and I now have established that history in our family in which my uh, my dad's had a had a couple strokes at this point and uh i had a stroke my my stroke was caused by a birth defect so the cause is a little different than um something that would be hereditary okay they took you to the hospital what did they do to you they took me in they thought i had vasculitis which is a very common differential diagnosis, which is, um, you know, a first guess. And so they gave me a CAT scan because something was definitely neurologically going, you know, there's something neurological going on. And then they saw something and they weren't sure what it was. So they checked me into the hospital, not checked me, they admitted me (laughs) um, into the hospital, at which point I was given an MRI, at which point it was revealed that, I had a left thalamic stroke. How long were you in the hospital? About a week. I was there for a week while they figured out, tried to figure out what the root cause of the stroke was. So even though they knew I'd had a stroke, the fact that I was 53 was cause for alarm in that I had an entire life left to live and they needed to figure out why I was having a stroke so that I could continue to live the, you know, as long a life as I could. So, you know, that's when I went under all the tests to figure out if I had a hole in my heart or, um, you know, where I was clotting and such. Now there's an old wives' tale, Christine, that says if you survive the first three days of a stroke, you're going to live, and that's in a critical period. Did you find that was true for you? Yes, you know what? I survived the first three days not going to the hospital. In fact, because it was New Year's Eve, all my, you know, my my husband at the time and our friend thought that you know they they were having some cocktails, and so they, they didn't realize something was drastically wrong with me. So it wasn't until the third day that I went to the hospital because by that point I was no longer remembering anything, and I couldn't keep a list. I couldn't do math. I forgotten that I talked to somebody 10 minutes prior. So uh, definitely the case for me. (laughs) Now, after a week in the hospital, I would imagine you went to rehab. How long were you there? You know, I didn't go to rehab. So my father did. But after a week in the hospital, they sent me home. They had me go to physical therapy and occupational therapy, which is, it sounds like it's work work therapy, but it's um, really 
therapy that helps me figure out how to make lists again and remember and such. So they just sent me home. Um, it's kind of on my own for a while. And it was a very interesting experience in which, you know, I, I had no connection to appetite, so I lost a tremendous amount of weight because I'd forget to eat. And then I'd get dizzy. Then I'd go to my fridge. And then had everything in there just looked like a mess of colors and patterns. And I couldn't figure out how to make a peanut butter sandwich. Why do you think they didn't send you to rehab? That surprises me. Well... I'm not sure. I didn't even know that that was an option at the time. You know, since then, my father's had a stroke, and he spent a month in inpatient rehab. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that none of my symptoms were physical. I looked normal. I was able to walk. I was able to, you know, present completely normally. Um, and my problems were completely related to memory because I was left with a 15-minute short-term memory. And uh, um, and emotions, I couldn't control them anymore. But uh, I, I don't know why. I think they thought, you know, I, I'm young and can recover. And as long as somebody watches me at home, I'd be, I should be fine. And was someone there? For the most part, um, Adam was able to spend the first two, three weeks home with me. And then after that, you know, he checked in and he would work half days to make sure that I wouldn't, <laughs> that he wouldn't find me wandering the neighborhood. <laughs> that, that had to be a frightening experience, though, that period of your life. Mm, you know, I think it was frightening about six months into recovery. But until then... I was so brain damaged that I didn't know what, I had no awareness of how messed up the situation was. So I was in, a, in an actual state of bliss because part of what happened was that I lost all my short-term memory, so I didn't have any sense of the past, and I didn't have any sense of the future, and basically so I didn't have any worries or regrets. I was unable to plan, unable to compare what used to be to the new now. And so I was in quite a sense of bliss because I was living completely in the present tense. And um, I understand that my experience is very unique in that respect. Mm -hmm. But that first, that first month or two was quite nice. Just wasn't you, nice for anyone else. <laughs> just you and your own little world. How would you describe exactly. What happened six months in? About six months in was when I was recovered enough to know what it was I was supposed to be able to do or what I could have done before and to become frustrated with what was happening. To be, and, and around that point is when my recovery slowed. I think the first three months of recovery were very dramatic in um, the ways I was able to regain some skills. I went from not being able to write, read a, a single paragraph to being able to read a news story by the end of the first three months. I couldn't read James Joyce, but I could read a, a, a newspaper article by then because I'd be able to remember what it was I read. And then around that point, I realized, hey, I should be able to write. Hey, I used to be a writer. Hey, I can't bake a cake. Hey, I can't do anything for myself hey, is this going to be the rest of my life? Oh, my goodness, this is unfathomable. I can't live like this. 
things have got to change. And that's when I started to yearn to return to my old self. And how long was his struggle to get there? It's about, it was about two years all in. I think by the end of the, between a year and a year and a half, I thought, well, if this is as far as we go, this is as far as we go, I guess. Um, you know, I, I lost my photographic memory. I was unable to memorize any phone numbers. I had to write every single thing down. I couldn't balance checkbook um, because I couldn't do the simple math. And at that point, you know, I sort of acquiesced and said, well, this is what it is. Um, and it wasn't, a, and then I, I gave up and said, you know, I'm just going to let the river take me. And uh, it was around the 18, actually not 18 months, like closer to two years, that I find my, found myself memorizing license plates while stuck in traffic. And that's something I do when I'm bored. I'm, that's just what I do. <laughs> um, and that's when I knew that I made a full recovery. I had not regained the same amount of skills as before. I hadn't regained the same skills I had before, but I'd regained in volume. You know, new sk- you know, if you if you factor in the new skills I'd gained and the new wisdom I'd gained, then it was at a point where I considered myself fully recovered. What did you lose? I lost, I used to be brilliant in math. I lost that. Um, I could, you know, I just, uh, I, I need to do addition and subtraction on paper. Thank goodness for calculators. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I'm calculating a tip, I used to be able to, you know, just do it in my head in a split second. Um, I have to, I have to, you know, I have to actually do the, do it on the receipt, just like in, in third grade. And, um, you know, I lost my ability to take on extraordinary amounts of tasks and chores. Um, I think the most significant thing that I live with is the fact that I no longer can thrive in a crowded, booming social environment. So I went from being an extreme extrovert and to something I have to call introversion because being social drains me. And that makes me very sad because I'm still an extrovert. I just call myself an extrovert because there's no other way to simply explain, explain it in, in a simple um, terms. And um, I just, you know, I've, I, I have limited amounts of energy. I, I bonk way earlier than I used to. So I have to be very considered about what I take on and what I do in a single day. You know, and these are all, I'm very fortunate, these are all things I can hide from the world. How long before you were able to go back to work, though? You know, I I was crazy. I went back to work in, like, three months. I didn't go back to work full-time. I went back to work one day a week. I, I think it was part of my denial, because I, I realized in hindsight, the whole, the recovery process also was a grieving cross process. So... Early on, I was in a state of denial. I looked fine, so and of course, I'm 33. Everyone around me was in their 30s, so they wanted to believe that I was fine. So there was no one stopping me from doing this, too. So I, I went back to work and just, I don't know what I did at my desk. Um, you know, 
And I, I met my former boss just a couple months ago, and I said, you know, I shouldn't have been back at work. I shouldn't have had asked. I, I just, I, you know, I wasn't able to tell you that I was so messed up um, because he was telling me, wow, you hit it really well. And I said, I sure did. Um, and I really should have taken, you know, a good nine months off from work. How did it change your marriage? It changed my marriage drastically. Um, you know, Adam became my caregiver. And that's not a that's not something that he was used to doing. Um, my needs became my needs had came before his, and that's not the dynamic we had because you know we strategically decided that I would support his career, and then once his career was fulfilled, then we'd invest in mine. But at the time. I, you know, it wasn't my turn yet. So it was rough. And, um, you know, he did a fantastic job, but clearly there were lasting consequences. And, uh, you know, and in the end, I became a new person. I became a different person. I didn't go back to my old self. I um, became probably a much more empathetic, emotionally driven person than before. Um with less energy. And so, you know, we, we're separated. We separated about, how long has it been? Like three years ago, mm. a little over three years ago. Sorry to hear that. Um, what do you want us to learn from your story? Get back up. You know, um, my whole story is about resilience. And in that sense, you know, my book is about a stroke but it's about much more than a stroke. I talk about my childhood and in Tell Me Everything You Don't Remember, I talk about all the ways in which we do suffer setbacks and the ways we make our way back from the setbacks. So it's really about resilience and finding your, your way forward through any crises. A good message, certainly. And I'd like to say thank you to Christine Hyung Oakley for her new book, Tell me everything you don't remember, the stroke that changed my life. Thank you, Christine. Thank you so much for having me on air, Peter. It's my pleasure. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always good conversation. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.